I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of nuclear annihilation. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. That was Dr. Martin Luther King as he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on December 10th, 1964. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald, and you're listening to Got Science. Today we're talking about African Americans against nuclear weapons, past and present. As some of you may know, we here at UCS have been working to reduce the danger of nuclear weapons for close to 50 years. These dangers are again on the minds of many Americans, and with good reason. We're seeing the escalation of the North Korea crisis, President Trump's rhetoric and actions, and the current state of U.S.-Russia relations. With the very future of humanity at stake, there's a new wave of anti-nuclear activism emerging, much like there was in the 1980s. Many of us are raising our voices and hitting the streets in resistance, as we've seen at the Women's March, the Science March, and the March a couple of weeks ago for climate, jobs, and justice. But think for a second about the protests of the past, specifically the anti-war and anti-nuclear protests. What comes to mind? Probably predominantly white college students and protesters, flower children, hippies, pacifists. These mental images, however iconic, are not historically accurate when you look at the full picture of anti-nuclear activism over the last 50-plus years, which is exactly what Dr. Vincent Intandi did, and he's our guest today on Got Science. Dr. Ntandi is here to discuss his book, African Americans Against the Bomb, and how his findings are so relevant as we work to connect the threat of nuclear weapons to other pressing threats and concerns today. He's an associate professor of history at Montgomery College, one of the nation's most diverse educational institutions, where he serves as director of the Institute for Race, Justice, and Community Engagement. He's also director of research at American University's Nuclear Studies Institute. My colleague, Damian Jones, sat down with Dr. Ntandi at his Montgomery College office in Maryland, and they had a wide-ranging conversation that gives appropriate recognition to a number of civil rights leaders who were instrumental in the anti-nuclear weapons movement. They talked about how issues of race and justice are so relevant and intertwined with nuclear weapons and today's anti-nuclear struggles. And if you're at all like me, you might not think there's much we can do. But as you listen to this conversation, you'll see that there are concrete things we can do that will make a difference. We're glad to be having this important conversation today. Take it away, Damien. Thanks, Colleen. So, Dr. Ntandi, tell us what motivated you to write African Americans Against the Bomb. Um, for most of my life as an academic and as an activist, it revolved around civil rights or revolved around the Black Freedom Movement. And nuclear weapons, like many students, especially, wasn't really on my radar. It was very abstract. Nobody would be crazy enough to use them. But in 2005, I made my first trip to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, met with atomic bomb survivors, went to the museums, the ceremonies. 
and I was filled with such anger and guilt about what my country had done that when I came back, I said to my advisor at the time, I need to find a way to combine these two passions of mine, eliminating racism and eliminating nuclear weapons. How do I do it? And he said, start with answering one question. What did African-Americans think about dropping the atomic bombs? Many colleagues said that I was crazy, that I wasn't going to find much of a response because African-Americans, understandably so, were too busy trying to gain their own freedom and equality, um, but they were wrong. There was a huge response, and that's what uh, led to the research. In your book, you, you mention Lorraine Hansberry, Paul Robeson, Dr. King, Bad Rust, and other civil rights leaders. What were their direct thoughts on atomic bombs? Well, again, nothing is monolithic, so not everybody was thinking the same thing. Um, but what I did see was, in large part in the African-American community, they were looking at the issue of nuclear weapons in a different lens from, from most whites. They okay. were looking at it through the lens of race. They were looking at it through the lens of colonialism. So somebody like Langston Hughes was questioning President Truman's own racism and what role that played in his decision. You had people like Paul Robeson that were looking at this and saying, uh, where are we getting the uranium to build nuclear weapons? And the answer, of course, was the Belgian control Congo. Congo, right. You had right. people like Byron Rustin that were looking at Nkrumah and Ghana having their independence movement, Algeria in a revolution, and he's looking at the French government wanting to test their first nuclear weapon in Africa and saying, don't we see how this is colonialism and how what the white West is trying to do? So they were looking at it in a way that many whites just simply weren't. So what's the key message of the book? If we could pull out just one key thing for listeners to grab. Yeah, that these are not separate issues. Uh, we hear a lot about this buzzword today of intersectionality. That is a word we love to throw around in activist circles uh, and how movements are connected. And this shows that. For so long, we have looked at the issue of nuclear disarmament as mostly a white middle class pacifist issue. Mm. And while there were many who were white and pacifist and middle class in this movement, uh, there was just an absence in the scholarship and in the writing, the history of African-Americans' role in this. And that just simply wasn't the case, that African-Americans who were active in this looked at this issue and the liberation of non-white people around the world is inextricably linked to their own struggle. Right. So with what's going on today, Trump's involvement with Russia, uh, allegedly, how do you think African-Americans are viewing that type of interaction? I think you're seeing not just African-Americans, but so many in the American public starting to view this and, and question Trump's and role with Russia and what can happen. As far as tying it into a larger issue with nuclear weapons, whether it's Russia and the U.S. having 90% of the world's nuclear weapons and what could that entail, because actually if you look at what Trump was saying in the 1980s, he was talking about teaming up with Russia and using our nuclear arsenals to bully other countries. Mm-hmm. If you look at the issue of North Korea, um, if you look at an issue like just say, India and Pakistan. If they were just to have a small nuclear exchange, billions would die from the fallout and radiation and famine. So one thing is African-Americans, and again, not not everybody, but so many of my students uh, are fighting on so many fronts. They're, they're trying to put food on the table. They're working multiple jobs. They're trying to get themselves through school. They're trying to make sure that the police aren't killing them on the way home from work, mm. that nuclear weapons still is, in many ways, is, is a very abstract issue, and I get it. So the key there is to try to make, especially the black community, understand how this issue is, is related to them now. And I think a big piece of that is economic conversion. Mm. How can we talk about broken down infrastructure in Baltimore and Anacostia and then not talk about spending a trillion dollars on nuclear weapons when we have enough to end the world? Right? So if we can show how that money has been better spent, we show the effects of what nuclear weapons have done to the non-white world over time. 
whether it's nuclear testing with Native Americans in, in French Polynesia and Australian Aborigines and Marshall Islands, or again, uh, mining uh, uranium in the Congo and, and what this is and how this is connected to the black community here is, is a key to really seeing how these movements can finally get back to where they were in the 80s and, and before that. In, in your powerful, powerful, powerful text, you do a great job of, of kind of walking through uh, the historical timeline as to how uh, the perspective of African Americans changed as more information came about, as more deals were on the table to be made. Can you just take a moment and kind of walk us through the beginning? I know we talked about Langston Hughes and his first question of what is the role of race in the dropping of the atomic bomb by Truman, but can it walk us through that historical timeline all the way up to, I think, in the 80s when you mentioned a big rally, we talked about bombs over babies. Yeah, so in the beginning, in when the bombs were first dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945, a majority of the American public rejoiced. Uh, in fact, Gallup did a poll a week after the atomic bombings in which 85% of the American public agreed with Truman's decision to use nuclear weapons. Roper did a poll at the same time that showed that 22% of the American public wished that Japan hadn't surrendered so he could have dropped more nuclear weapons and killed more people. And no poll up until late October 1945 ever showed more than 4.5% of, of the respondents critical of Truman's decision. Mm-hmm. And that was because we had a genocidal race hatred against the people of Japan in this country. It's really been unmatched, even worse than how we treated people of Middle Eastern descent after 9-11. Uh, and this is something we do, you know, dating back, of course, to slavery, that we have non-white people and we treat them as something less than human. Uh, and it makes it easier to commit violence against them. And we did this, of course, with Japan after Pearl Harbor. But that wasn't the case in the black community. And again, nothing is monolithic. But immediately following the bombing, there were the atomic scientists, uh, there were those in, in the church, and then the black community that were among the first to really come out against Truman's decision. And so you see initial responses. I went to the black press and looked at columnists in the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier, right. the Afro-American. And, but I also wanted to see what the rank and file thought. So I started going through letters to the editor uh, of all of them. And, uh, that was a very tedious process. Well, not for kids today, right? <laughs> the kids today go on ProQuest, two buttons, search. I was in the Library of Congress on microfilm going through each issue. But you saw a pattern. I saw a pattern there. And again, going through the black clergy and looking at their sermons, same mm-hmm. thing. And yes, Langston was the first to come out and really question Truman's racism. And he was certainly right to do so. Wait, so, so the black clergy? Yes. Even from the pulpit, yes, we're making strong statements. Yes, so they were saying we don't have enough religion to stop this. They were looking at it in a very apocalyptic way. Okay. The genie's out of the bottle. Uh, they were questioning race as well. So going through the AME Church and going through a, a lot of these sermons, and you would see a pattern there as well. So Langston, of course, questions Truman's racism, and he's right to do so. Truman was, if not, you know, certainly not the most racist president. We might have that now, but certainly was a racist president. If you go through his letters to his wife Bess, his own. Pers- personal journal. He rarely refers to African-Americans as anything other than the N-word. Uh, this is a man who brags that in his in interviews that in his family you got slaves as wedding presents to start off the housekeeping with. Wow. His mother openly supported the Confederacy, and when she visited him at the White House for the first time, said she'd rather sleep on the floor than ever step foot in Lincoln's bedroom. Wow. Uh, he sent a $10 check to the Ku Klux Klan to become a member when he was in Missouri, but they sent it back because he refused to fire Catholic workers. Right. And when we dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, he was told that we just essentially killed 140,000 people. The first thing he did is jump up and say, quote, this is the greatest thing in history. Mm. So um, Yikes. the most far-reaching criticism initially came from the Black Popular Front, the National Negro Congress, the Council on African Affairs, and, of course, Du Bois and Robeson. They were the two that really went all in at the beginning. 
But as you say, with that timeline, a lot of this changes in 47 with the okay. Truman Doctrine. When Truman comes out long before George W. Bush and says, with us or against us, the worst thing you could be labeled in this country was black and red. And so a lot of these groups were destroyed when McCarthyism comes in and HUAC comes in. And groups like the NAACP, not on every issue, but on this issue, they made a calculated decision that if they made a sharp turn to the right and they allied with Truman, who were staunchly anti-communists, turning on their own leader, Du Bois, that that would somehow result in civil rights legislation, which of course doesn't pay out. What, what would be the, the overarching thinking uh, behind that? Well, again, that if you are making an enemy of the president, it's not going to work. And then to show that you are more American, right? So it's this idea that we, if we, whether it's putting on the uniform in the military or whether it's allying yourself with the White House, but to distance yourself from communism, to distance yourself and say, see, we're, more, we're as American as you. We've, we've played our part. We support mm-hmm. your role in this, in this fight. So therefore, they're somehow going to look at us now as, as human beings. Now they're going to reward us with civil rights legislation. And Truman needs the black vote. To, to win re-election against uh, um, Henry Wallace and the Progressive Party and Dewey and the Republican Party. So he makes this, this speech where he's going in the black community that he's going to give civil rights. And he, of course, he doesn't. He does nothing. His, his racist vigilanteism just runs rampant throughout his tenure. Um, but not everybody saw it that way. Du Bois, Robeson, others, they didn't see peace as a bargaining chip. They saw the start of the Korean War. And here we are building a hydrogen bomb in 52. They see an arms race with the Russians. And they said, we're not going to allow another Hiroshima to happen on another people of color in Korea and start fighting this. Um, We see in the late 1950s or in the mid-50s with the civil rights movement now, you see Byron Rustin getting active. Dr. King, we just talked about with April 4th, the anniversary of his death, but also of the Beyond Vietnam speech. Many argue that that's when King really got active in this fight was in April 4th, 1967. If you specifically look at nuclear weapons, it actually happened a decade before that. Mm. He was making public statements against nuclear weapons as early as 1957, and he was getting a lot of that from his wife Coretta. Just put a pin in that right there. Sure. You, 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 you know, you and I talked earlier about some of the other great civil rights leaders who don't get enough fanfare: Barry Rustin, Lorraine Hansberry, Paul Robeson, uh, and others. But we can't forget the contributions of a Dr. King. Talk about how Dr. King's statements and bold critiques uh, of international relations may have led to his untimely demise. So, yeah, when when King was asking to use uh, the same water fountains, he was everybody's liberal darling. Mm-hmm. But when he starts critiquing capitalism and critiquing militarism, the triple evils of racism, and he critiques nuclear weapons in Vietnam, now many turn on him including Bayard Rustin. By that point, Rustin, in his views, actually become inverted. Uh, There were many that thought he was the Vietnam, the anti-Vietnam War movement was pro-communist and he shouldn't be part of that. Uh, So there were many in his community and white liberals and the government that completely turned on him. Turned on him completely. Turned on him completely. You know, at the end of his life, it was one of the first, that last year of his life was one of the first times in 10 years he didn't make Gallup's poll of the 10 most admired Americans. Couldn't get a speaking engagement at a single black college or university because he said he'd been in jail too many times. Uh, Didn't have any money. Everything he had, he was given to the civil rights movement. Um, So, yeah, he was much more radical than people acknowledge because we want to do everything binary. So with him and Malcolm. Um, And in fact, when we look at their lives in particular, we can see that towards the end of his life, Martin was moving ever closer to Malcolm's train of thought. It wasn't the other way around. But he was hugely influential in that regard. He just could not sit quiet as mostly 
young African-American men were being drafted on the front lines to kill other non-white people. We were committing a genocide. You know, the, the thing with Vietnam and with King is we have a wall down at the National Mall. Mm-hmm. The names of 58,000 men, U.S. soldiers that gave their life in Vietnam. There's nowhere in this country where we have the names of the 3.8 million Vietnamese that died. Wow. If we put those 3.8 million names on that wall, it'd be close to 10 miles, 11 miles long. And what message would that send make people think about war? We're very good at celebrating war in this country, but not so much about peace. We have one peace museum. It's in, I think, Dayton, Ohio. It's about the size of this room. Uh, And that's something that King really wanted to change. That Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at ucsusa.org. If you want to hear more episodes of Got Science, go to ucsusa.org slash podcast. Let's get back to the second half of our interview. Let me pivot just a little and as I look around your, your beautiful office with so many different uh, books and portraits, um, so many different incredible moments in American history, I want to go to Malcolm. And I, when I walked in, I saw the, the beautiful photo of Malcolm, and I, I can't begin to tell you the impact that he's had on my life without even meeting him. But you also mentioned in the text that, that Malcolm had a strong position on nuclear weapons throughout this, as this movement began to uh, cultivate. What was Malcolm's position, and what was his involvement? Yeah, you know, Malcolm's thing was, of course, it's okay to go have wars and bomb other countries, but when four little girls are bombing a Birmingham church, you know, then what? We're not going to do anything. But as far as nuclear weapons go, there's a story. He was um, he was traveling in the Middle East. He was traveling in Africa. And in June of 1964, a group of Hiroshima survivors and peace activists were on a world peace study mission. And they came to the United States, and the person that organized it was the great uh, activist, Japanese activist, Yuri Kachiyama, who was okay. friends with Malcolm. And we lost not too, too long ago. And when they got here, she said to them, what is it that you want to do most while you're here? And they all said, meet Malcolm. But as I said, Malcolm was traveling, and she started writing letters to his office, not thinking he got them. And the last day, she was having a reception for the survivors in her apartment in New York, and there was a knock at the door. And when she answered the door, there stood Malcolm. He came back. Wow. And Malcolm said to the survivors, you've all been hit with the atomic bomb, but we've also been hit here, and the bomb that hit us was racism. We spent that day talking to them about how racism and colonialism, and Vietnam, nuclear weapons, how these things were all connected, because Malcolm understood what so many before him understood, that the issue really wasn't about civil rights, it was universal human rights. Human rights. And Malcolm consistently argued that what happens in Africa and in Asia and Southeast Asia and Latin America is inextricably linked to what is happening to African Americans here in this country. And this issue fits perfectly in that scope. Yo, man, you, you just made a beautiful distinction. The bomb that was dropped on us was racism. So let's fast forward to 2017. When you look at the issues that are plaguing African-Americans in this country, police brutality, uh, decrepit school systems, even in Flint three years later, we still don't have drinkable water. It seems as though there's been another bomb dropped in this country on African-Americans, just another layer of racism. But those things kind of saturate the headlines. But nowhere in those conversations do we hear about, again, nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm international relations, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. Talk about how everyday people can somehow get nuclear weapons and and, and ending that at the top of their list. Mm -hmm. 
among with those other uh, uh, leading issues? So there's a couple things. One is, um, as Dr. King would consistently say, what does it matter if we're trying to integrate lunch counters and not be concerned about the world in which we're trying to integrate? Or what does it matter if we finally achieve social justice if we're all dead from nuclear war? Mm. It doesn't make any sense. Um, a big piece is getting back to that mindset that so many in the black community have had for years, which is connecting their struggle with those around the world. And we had that. We've had, whether it was Marcus Garvey in Pan-Africanism, whether it was the black arts movement, whether it was even in the golden era of hip hop with wearing African medallions and, and the red, black, and green flag. There was consistently this connection with what is happening in the non larger non-white world, right? right. Uh, right in, even in 1955, when you have the heinous murder of Emmett Till in the summer, and later on in December, you have Rosa Parks for refusing to give up her seat on the bus. You also had the Bandung Conference, the first all-African-Asian conference, right? And that platform was against white supremacy, nuclear weapons, and colonialism. So trying to educate my students, trying to educate people to, to see how these things are interconnected. One thing that was done effectively in the 80s, as you mentioned, was Bombs Over Babies, which mm-hmm. was a campaign to show that the economic conversion piece. That again, how can we talk about broken down infrastructure in places like Baltimore, and places poor Ferguson, when you have trillions of dollars being spent on nuclear weapons and show how they could be better spent. The other piece is um, I just interviewed Helen Keldicott for a new book I'm writing. I interviewed her this morning and I asked her what was different between the 80s? What was different now? And she said, um, we spent every waking moment focusing on the human aspect of this, mm-hmm. really educating people of what nuclear weapons do to you. I don't think people still understand. Even when there's a hurricane or a tornado, people say it looked like a, bomb, a nuclear weapon went off. No, it didn't. There's nothing like it. Uh, and so I think that's another piece. Now, we're starting to see this a little bit. We're starting to see this intersectionality after Black Lives Matter activists standing with the Dakota Pipeline and Native Americans, and we need more of that. Um, those that are organizing on the nuclear disarmament front need to, they ask me all the time, what can we do to connect with Black Lives Matter? My response is just show up. Just show up. Don't tell people what to do. Right. Don't try to do too much. Just show up. Just it's going to take years to build that trust, but right. eventually they're going to right. see you're always there. You're right. always there standing by them, and eventually that will be reciprocated. And that's a, don't talk at them or any of these things. Yeah. And I think the other thing with nuclear disarmament is, you know, the environmental movement, uh, climate change, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was very much where nuclear disarmament is now. It's kind of in disarray. A lot yeah. of groups talking at each other. Yeah, yeah. But they recognized they needed something to rally behind, and it was Keystone. Now, Keystone Pipeline wasn't the be-all, end-all of the environmental movement, but it was tangible, and it was simplistic, and it was something that you could really rally all people around, and it worked. And I think that's what you have to have with nuclear disarmament. So when you What's that one thing? Well, I think right now it's the ban treaty at the UN. Okay. Because the idea of just having a legal framework at the United Nations to ban nuclear weapons and, and actually do it with 120 nations doing, that is the thing that you can get behind. Having, you know, trying to talk to students or, or people that are, are not in the know about these issues, about the CBT and the NPT and the ICBM, it's gone. <laughs> they don't care. You know, and I understand that. You right, know, what 18, right. But if you just say it's very simple, there's 120 nations, so many of them non-white, who are trying to ban nuclear weapons the way we look, and to make them look the way we look at chemical weapons today, that's something you can get behind. Uh, and the juxtaposition, talk about race, where you have hundreds of nations, many of them non-white, in the United Nations just last week negotiating this ban treaty. And then you have Putin and Trump, two authoritarians with a white nationalist worldview with 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. It can't be more stark, the, the contrast of, of, of how race is inter- intersected with this. 
this week, as you just mentioned, April 4th, 1968, is a day that always rings uh, into my heart. I'll never forget. And also, it's the anniversary of Jay-Z and Beyonce, <laughs> uh, two of my favorite people on this earth. Um, but so we, we, we can't overlook the contributions of, of Dr. King. Given where we are in this country today, from an environmental standpoint, uh, from a nuclear disarmament standpoint, just from a decency standpoint, what do you think Dr. King would say? It's not so much what he'd say, it's what he'd be doing. I think he'd be unrelenting in the streets. You know, you look at this office, the reason I have so much of this in my office is one, because I want students to come in here and be motivated, and Absolutely. these are all books they borrow, and it, I want them to learn, for me. you know. But the other piece is because when I am either feeling maybe a little bit hopeless because they're looking to me for guidance or when I am just tired, I look and realize, you know, Malcolm, he went on three hours of sleep, one meal a day. You look at King at the end of his life exhausted. These guys never stopped. No money. They just did it, you right. know. And so uh, Obama, when he was running for president in 08, was asked at one point in the debate, what would Dr. King, would he support your candidacy? And he said, no, Dr. King would be in the streets making me do what I said I was going to do. And that really is what King would be doing. And and I think, again, especially when it comes to international relations, nuclear disarmament, the person that pushed King to do it and would have today been pushing him to do it was his wife. Coretta was a long-season activist dating back to her days at Antioch College, heavily involved in the peace movement, and she was the influence on him to say, you've got to see how these issues are connected. So she would have been leading the way for him. What do you tell your students? They may ask the question, how can I affect policy? around nuclear disarmament. What can I do today to help move the needle in the right direction? And that, and that goes for our listeners as well. What mm -hmm. can everyday people do to affect policy to move the needle in the right direction? So a couple of things. One is, uh, with my students in particular, it's that old adage of think global, act local, right? Okay. So especially in D.C., you can get lost. There's so many organizations, and who do you join, and what do you do? And you can, there's so much here. So... I work with my students to organize on this campus. Oh, good. So what can we do to make this campus the most socially conscious, politically active on this issue and others? And once we do that, then we'll do all of Montgomery College, and then it will be the county and the state and so on and so forth. So don't try to jump in too much Start on your that, backyard. right? right. You gotta educate, and you gotta educate first. You gotta sure. know these issues first. Sure. On a larger issue though, and I get this question all the time, what can we do? And there's not one thing because not everybody is going to be like me. Not everybody's going to be the person that wants to be in the streets. Protesting is not for everybody. Some people are really good at the behind-the-scenes stuff. Some people are good at organizing. Some people are. And so everybody has gifts, and what you do with it is your gift back. I can't play a musical instrument to save my life. I have no artistic ability whatsoever. I have my voice, my ability to write. And so my response is if you're a journalist, if you're a writer, then write. If you're a poet, then spit. Use that gift. If you're an artist, then, then draw. Uh, if you're a musician, then play. But use that gift like so many during the Holland Renaissance did to further the cause, uh, whether it's for freedom, equality, or nuclear disarmament to keep us all alive. And because if you can leave this country, you can leave this world with, you know, I know when I die, there's still going to be racism sure. and there's still going to be nuclear weapons. Sure. But if it's a little bit less for my niece, a just less. a little bit, then that's all I can do. You've done right? your part. Right. And there's daily acts of resistance. What you wear, who you listen to, what you watch, who, what you eat. Uh, there's so many daily acts of resistance that you can do that, that have an impact, that make a difference. Dr. Vincent Intundi, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. 
Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Vincent Intandi. Our correspondent for this episode is Damian Jones. Editing, engineering, and music is handled by Brian Middleton. Research and writing support by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes. And I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Got Science airs every other Tuesday. You can find us at ucsusa.org slash podcast. See you next time.